Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today we're going to begin a new book, and so if you have your Bibles this morning, let's open to 1 Corinthians. We will begin our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Let's go ahead and read together the first nine verses from 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you would agree with me in prayer once more, Lord, this is your word and we thank you for it. Once again, Lord, we ask for understanding here this morning as we consider these incredible truths. Even, Lord, in the first nine verses, the, the, the powerful statements that are made, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these words here today to consider, Lord, the significance of them and how we might apply them to our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was considering our introduction to 1 Corinthians, and of course, it falling on this particular weekend, I couldn't help but think of some of the events surrounding this weekend as well as things happening this month. And in particular, tomorrow... Monday, January 17th, the third Monday of January, our country observes Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's the 36th year since its establishment, first recognized as a federal holiday in 1986. It's a day to celebrate and consider the work of the influential civil rights leader and the impact that his life and work had on the advancement of ethnic equality in our country. Indeed, our country has made significant progress over its many years, but the ideals upon which we were founded, the forming of this more perfect union, would certainly compel us to even more, to pursue even more progress in recognizing the God-given value of every human made in his image. And January also serves as Sanctity of Human Life Month. Again, a focus throughout the month in recognizing the inherent worth, value, and dignity of every human life, born and unborn, black and white, male and female, 
And as we observe a day of remembrance for Martin Luther King Jr. and his work for civil rights, it should be noted, uh, embedded within the month that celebrates the sanctity of human life, that the first civil right is the right to life. It's foundational. From womb to the tomb, as it is said, every individual is made in the image of God. This was stressed in Martin Luther King Jr.'s infamous I Have a Dream speech, wherein he proclaimed, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. That we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. These words pulled from our Declaration of Independence speak of value. Value for all life. Value that is inherent in who we are. In the fact that we are alive and bear the image of the Almighty God. As we begin our study this morning of 1 Corinthians, we're going to consider aspects of value. And it's an interesting thing. And, and I do pray that as we consider just the first portion of this text here this morning, that it serves as an incredible encouragement to you as we consider the value that we have as those who are in Christ Jesus. Because so often, our measure of value, our assessment of worth and dignity, is so distorted. Whether toward others or even ourselves, and history has shown this to be true. You know, recently I've challenged our body, and we will continue to pursue this. It will be a theme of sorts throughout the year. But we've talked about seeking the Lord individually to gain an understanding of who we are of how God has uniquely gifted us and equipped us, and how that is to be brought into the body of Christ. It's important to know these things. It's important to know who we are and, and how God has gifted us and, and what that means in terms of the role we play within the body of Christ. But this pursuit can, can easily get so off track thinking that, that as we discover these things, that we'll begin to find our value. That then and only then, when we are fully serving in line with our giftings, will we be able to say that we are adding value, that our life is worth something. And it's then that we convince ourselves that we finally earned God's grace and favor. We're so, we're so quick to go down that path. It's our default the idea that we can achieve worth, that we can earn our value. But the gospel says differently. The gospel, in the words of a good friend and mentor of mine, is not about what you do. He says, it's who you be. Stated differently, it's who you are. And as Martin Luther King Jr. so passionately reminded people in that summer of 1963, who you are is someone created equal. That is an identity established not from a lifetime of achievement, but something endowed upon you before your first breath. It's who you are. Believe it or not, Paul deals with these truths in the introduction to this letter that we just read. 
I think sometimes when we begin to read some of these letters, we can easily move through the first several verses and consider them to be just an eloquent introduction. But stated within these verses are incredible doctrinal truths about who we are. And despite some of the difficult subjects that Paul will be compelled to address in this letter, those of you familiar with the a letter to the Corinthians, know that he's going to delve into some areas that are a little uncomfortable to say the least. Despite this, Paul does not miss the opportunity to provide necessary encouragement to this church. Encouragement rooted in the work of Christ and what that means for who we are and the value that we possess. As we begin, let's consider some background and an overview of this important book. Corinth was an important city in ancient Greece until it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC. Now, Julius Caesar rebuilt it as a Roman colony in 46 BC, and it grew and prospered, becoming the capital of the province of Achaia. And Corinth was at the heart of the trade route in the ancient world. And because of its two seaports, it became a commercial center. Many small ships were rolled or dragged across what's called the Corinthian Isthmus. It's a tough word. Isthmus. It's a narrow strip of land. To avoid a dangerous 200-mile voyage around southern Greece. And so ships would literally be drugged across the land and so that they could avoid a dangerous route. And, and it made Corinth then an incredible hub for trade and commerce. It wasn't until 1893 that a canal was built to accommodate the passage. I mention that because often because of trade and the influx of people, pagan idolatry becomes quite prevalent. The city was filled with shrines and temples. But the most prominent was the temple of Aphrodite on top of a 1,800-foot peninsula of sorts. It was called the Acrocorinthus. Worshippers of the goddess of love would encounter 1,000 consecrated temple prostitutes. Think 1 Corinthians 13 in the infamous chapter on love. We can understand why the Corinthians needed some understanding on what real love was. Corinth thrived on commerce, entertainment, partying, and corruption. Pleasure seekers came there to spend money on a holiday for morality. Corinth became so notorious for its evils that the term Corinth adzomai, to act like a Corinthian, became a synonym for debauchery and prostitution. In Paul's day, the population of Corinth was around 700,000, about two-thirds of whom were slaves. But despite these obstacles to the gospel, Paul was able to, by the Spirit, establish a church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. We read of some of that in Acts chapter 18, specifically in verses 1 through 7. It's there we read about how in Corinth, Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, with whom he began to make tents. And Paul reasoned there with the Jews in the synagogue, and eventually Silas and Timothy joined him. And after experiencing persecution in the synagogues, Paul began to devote his time to spreading the gospel amongst the Gentiles. Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians from Corinth, and he taught the Word of God in Corinth for 18 months in the years 51 and 52 AD. After Paul's departure, Apollos came from Ephesus to minister there in Corinth. 
And it was when Paul was teaching and preaching in Ephesus during his third missionary journey that he heard reports from the household of Chloe concerning quarrels in the church at Corinth. So the church sent a delegation of three men who brought a letter to Paul requesting Paul's opinion on certain issues. Paul wrote this letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, as his response to the problems and questions that had come. This letter was probably written around 56 AD. And here in 1 Corinthians, it will reveal the problems, the pressures, the struggles of a church called out of a pagan society, but still living amongst it. Paul will deal with a variety of problems amongst the Corinthian church, factions that were formed among them, lawsuits, immorality, questionable practices, abuse of the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. Paul will share words of discipline, words of counsel, but first he will share words of encouragement that we all need to hear. Let's turn our attention once again to verse 1 as Paul writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, most of us, when we learned to write a letter, that we were taught to address the recipient first and then conclude with mention of our own name. We'd start with dear so-and-so and conclude with sincerely and your name. But in this time, that was reversed. Paul mentions first who he is, the one sending the letter before he addresses his recipients. And consider, if you will, how he refers to himself, as this certainly sets the tone for the encouragement that follows. Paul says that he is an apostle. He's a special ambassador or representative of God. And what we will see in this letter is that the church in Corinth doesn't really seem to respect Paul's apostolic authority. But here in this introduction, we see that Paul isn't really looking for that, nor does he care. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle so long as you guys think I am and you respect me as one. Paul recognizes rather that his role of apostle is not rooted in what he has done, nor is it dependent upon popular opinion, but rather it is rooted in the call and the will of God. It's the one who is in who is in authority that he cares most about. Paul mentions here also, most likely, that the one serving as his scribe for the letter is with him. He says that uh, Sosthenes, our brother, and this is possibly the Sosthenes who was once the leader of the synagogue in Corinth, who protected Paul from attacks against him and who himself was beaten for doing so. In Acts, we read of a Sosthenes, who was the leader of the synagogue, who sought to protect Paul from attacks coming against him and, and, and was beaten. It's likely that same man who is now with Paul and helping to scribe this letter. And Paul, by mentioning his name, also brings with him then some familiarity to the church in Corinth, someone who they would know, and it lends more credibility to the letter being written. And so Paul says here, look, I'm an apostle called by God, not, not, not called by man, an apostle, not because of my own achievements, but because of what God has done, because of what God has willed. And so providing then their introduction, Paul now turns attention to his recipients, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He says to the church in Corinth specifically, 
but generally to all who call on Jesus. That includes us. That includes the broader church. And note this description. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Friends, we cannot overlook the significance of this single verse. Here in only the second verse of this letter, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, establishes clearly your identity as a believer and he assigns you value. Think about this. Think about how often people might be inclined to ask themselves this philosophical question of who am I? What's my identity? Aren't we all in life seeking to understand that and to establish that? Here in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul proclaims it. He declares it, at least for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Christian, pay attention. Your identity is noted here. Sanctified, he says. And it speaks of being set apart to a sacred purpose. It speaks of being made holy or different than the ordinary things of this world. Those who have been sanctified are called saints. And this is every believer. Not, not some super achieving believer who's, who's accomplished a variety of different tasks. No, every single believer is a saint. And so that means that, that I, could, I can look out at those who are here this morning. If, if those of you watching online were here amongst us, I, could, I can look out at a gathering of believers and refer to you as saints. And as Paul makes clear, rather than you receiving this based on your own efforts, this has been externally bestowed upon you by the call of God upon your life. It's a work that he has done. Therefore, it is not rooted in what you do. It's a declaration of who you are. Now, when you begin to understand then who you are in Christ, you begin to understand your inherent value and worth that form your identity independent of what you have done or will do. What begins to happen? In my opinion, verse 3 begins to happen. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have a right understanding of who God has declared us to be, we then begin to truly understand at least a significant aspect of God's grace. And as we do, as you begin to understand grace, you then begin to experience peace. Because you know that there is nothing that I can do, nothing that you can do, nothing that we have to do, the creator God of the universe approves of who you are. And therefore, you no longer need to seek the approval of others. Do you understand how significant that is? Because whether we admit it or not, and no doubt Various people are on uh, various places of this, of this spectrum of seeking approval. But inevitably, throughout our lives, we find ourselves in, in, in times of seeking the approval of others. But so often when we do, we're seeking the approval of the wrong people. Seeking unnecessary approval. 
But when we begin to understand God's grace, we begin to understand that once again, the creator God of the universe approves of you. I want you to listen to this. These are not my words. They're not original to me, but they are for you today. Because of Christ's redemption, I am a new creation of great worth. I am deeply loved, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted by God, and absolutely complete in Christ. Christian, do you know that that is true of you today? That, saints, is grace. That's grace. And there is always peace that follows our understanding of that. How can there not be peace for those who today can understand that because of Christ's redemption, you are a new creation of great worth, deeply loved, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted, absolutely complete. So then Paul's encouragement to the church in Corinth and to us has served then to reinforce our identity and that our identity is not rooted in what we do, but in who we are in Christ. Yet for each of us, there is still inevitably a looming question, even when understanding who we are, we, we then move to, well, what do I do? We always want to come back to, well, what do I do? What do I do now? And as believers, there is something for us to do. There's exhortation in Scripture. There's challenge in Scripture. And so it's good for us to understand this, but it must start with an understanding of who we are. We can't escape, it seems, our desire to prove ourselves, to want to prove that we're, we're good enough. But just as our identity is established in what he has done, so our aptitude or our abilities are not in what we can do, but in what he does through us. This work of grace continues. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, when the awareness of our identity comes upon us, that is, that you are a saint called by God, set apart for service, consecrated to God, we can then begin to wonder, well, how can I measure up? Even when we understand that it's God who has established this identity, that he has bestowed this identity upon us, we can so easily begin to think that we must do something to maintain that identity, to earn that identity, even retroactively. But what Paul shows us here is that it's not about us measuring up, but about God's grace, which was given to us. What Paul is saying about the church in Corinth here is, he says, you guys proclaim Jesus, you share the gospel, you know about Jesus, you learn and grow, you're excited about his return, there are supernatural giftings among you, 
Not that you have earned, but that God has given you. And he's saying, look, there's some real solid foundations here amongst you. Because we know that Paul is going to start to deal with some things that aren't going all that well amongst this church. Here he's, he's laid clearly before them that there is a lot of good things that are happening there. And he points those things back then to the fact that it's God doing this work in them and through them. Once again, it is God's grace. So we can see here then that the very identity that God bestows upon you He equips you to walk in that identity. That's the important thing to consider here. It's not then about, whoa, uh, there's so much pressure now. A saint set apart for God? I mean, certainly when we hear that, we would think to ourselves, this is a pretty big job. But lest we go down the path then of thinking that somehow we have to figure out how do we fulfill that work, we see here that as Paul declares, it's God who's going to do that work. He equips you to walk in the very identity that he's given you. Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21 tells us that the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, he will equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The implication there, of course, is that what God calls you to, he will equip you for. We understand that. It's not what you do. It's who you are. It's not what you earn. It's what he gives. It's God's grace. So then, as we settle into the identity that he has bestowed on us, and as we learn then that he equips us to walk in that identity, We often wonder then, because we kind of keep bringing it back to our effort and to our performance, because we struggle to understand grace, we then begin to ask, well, am I walking in the right direction? God has told me who I am, and I know that he equips me to do what he has called me to do, but am I doing the right things? What about where I'm going? What about my future? And so we find that there is such comfort and reassurance Not just in the stated value of who we are and of what we are doing, but the affirmation of where we are going. And in God's amazing grace, we see that he takes care of that as well. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here... Paul points now to the future and says, this will be you. You will be confirmed to the end. Blameless in that day. Now, how can Paul say with such confidence, especially about these Corinthian believers, who we know were doing some pretty foolish things, how can he say with such confidence that they will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 9, God is faithful. God is faithful. By whom, and so we see here it was because of him, not you, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why would God call you into such relationship, bestow upon you such identity, equip you to do such work, only to fail 
and to bring something negative upon his name? Is God not faithful? God is faithful. He has called you. He has given you identity. He has equipped you for the work that he has called you to do. And your future is secure in him. Pastor and author Stephen Um writes this of verses 8 and 9. He writes, We can imagine the substantial encouragement this would have been to readers living in a city where one's trajectory was perpetually insecure. In a meritocracy, one's future is only as secure as one's present success. When your temporal future is only as certain as your ability to keep performing at a high level, the comfort of knowing your eternal future has already been decided is the ultimate encouragement. In this way, we can be encouraged that our futures are just as secure. We are not unfamiliar with the demand for high performance and the temptation of embarking on self-security projects. But the scriptures assure us that no matter the uncertainty or precariousness of our present situation, our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain us to the end. And we will enjoy life with him because we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not what you do, it's who you are in Christ. It's not what you earn, it's what Christ gives. And it's not how you will perform, it's what Jesus will do. Much of the experiencing of the transforming work of Christ in our lives is about truly understanding his radical grace. And letting that grace invade your life. As we've considered often over the last several weeks, even months, and now here in January as we've encouraged you to read Pastor Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything, I suspect and hope that you are picking up on a theme there that we need to better understand God's grace. God's grace doesn't simply speak of forgiveness and forgiveness alone. Though that is such an incredible and foundational element of God's grace. God's grace speaks of him doing whatever it will take to make the necessary changes in your life. To use you for his glory. To prepare you for glory. To ensure that you cross that finish line well. Everything in our culture tells us we must merit what comes our way. We must earn it. We must perform. That you're only as good as your last performance. You're only as good as that last presentation at work. You're only as good as your last sermon. You're only as good as your last student. And whatever the case may be in each of your areas, however, whatever sphere of influence you have, performance is ever before us. But this is not the way of Jesus. Can you imagine receiving this letter? Being reminded that the creator God of the universe finds in you incredible value and worth. And that he wants to work in you and ensure that your future is pleasing to him. And to ensure that you finish well. Well, Paul says this letter is to you, Christian. To all those who call on the name of Jesus. 
But you see, it is so easy for us to fall back into thinking that our identity and our worth and our value is about what we do and what we achieve and how we perform. We have grace amnesia. And when we do, and here's the, here's the other thing now, is, is that when we do this, and this begins to set up where Paul starts to go in this letter, when we do, when we begin to forget about God's grace, when we begin to put it back on our merits and our achievements and what we need to do, then we begin to divide. We begin to divide. And that's what the church in Corinth began to do. So Paul's plea was for them to be unified. The reality of who they were in Christ and what Jesus was doing in them and what he had for them served as the basis for unity. And for Paul's exhortation in verse 10, where we'll close. Verse 10, now I plead with you, Paul says, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Where Paul will go from here in the following verses is to explain more of the division that was coming into the church in Corinth. We'll gain a better understanding of what was happening during their time and of course apply it to our current context. But for the sake of this morning, what we must understand is that when we draw our identity from anything other than the foundational truth that we are all individuals made in the image of God, and because of that, we have inherent value, worth, and dignity that has been bestowed upon us, then we will root our identity instead in what we do. If we look away from those things, we will begin to look at what we do and how we perform. And we will immediately put ourselves at odds with one another because we will be competing for that value and for that worth and for that favor and for that attention and for that approval. But what God says to us is you are all of value. And even what we have sought to establish in this country is to communicate that we are all created equal. Now this morning we would have been planning to take communion together. We will move that to next Sunday. But perhaps it's fitting that here over this next week we can consider once again as we've considered before in anticipation of communion, this very sacred opportunity we have as the body of Christ to come together that as we take communion, we ought to be taken as a unified body. A division amongst us That we would, and this is imperative, that we would recognize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That we come to the communion table not on the basis of what we have done or what we have earned, but in what Jesus has done and what he has earned on our behalf. That we are called, sanctified, equipped, and that he will complete the work that he has begun in us, not the other way around. And there is great peace and comfort in that. It's a truth that should cause us to take a deep breath when we consider the introduction to 1 Corinthians and we begin to truly understand what it communicates about our identity and who we are. It should be a moment, if we truly understand it, where we can take a breath and say, I'm okay. I'm complete in Him. It should be a truth that causes us to cease our striving 
to know that there's rest in him, that you have nothing to prove. Once again, from Stephen Um, as I summarize this morning, he writes, what does this mean for us? It means that our status as sanctified and saints is not based upon our work, but upon the work of another. Our identity is sure because it was given to us by someone else. Our gifts are sure and sufficient because they were given to us by the gift maker. And our future is secure because it has been prepared for us by the one who holds the future in his hands. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. It's call for us to rest as dear saints in who he says we are. To rest in what he will equip us to do. To rest in his ability to usher us across the finish line. I would encourage you with that word this week. Continue to read through. I challenge you in this. Read through this introduction. As we've considered recently and last week in our study of Habakkuk. Take this passage. Read it each day. Pray beforehand. Lord, show me the truths in this word. That you want me to understand about me. About who I am. And you. Allow by the Holy Spirit the confidence of who he has created you to be. To settle into your hearts. Be encouraged by that this week. And perhaps even as we come together again next week and we do partake of communion together, that there would be, even in the absence of gathering, a greater unity amongst our body because of what the Holy Spirit has done. Amen? Let me pray for you as we close here this morning. Father God, we pause here this morning once again and we do thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that moves and works in our midst, knowing, Lord, that you are everywhere, Lord, at all times, able to meet with us and to, and to meet with us personally, Lord, even when we're apart from one another. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would so work amongst us as to bring, Lord, a, a confident understanding of the truths that we see in this passage before us here today. Because it's not simply an introduction, Lord, but a reminder that our identity is found in you. That our aptitude, Lord, our abilities come from you. That our future is sure in you. And Lord, such a reminder is perhaps even more necessary. Lord, in light of the many things going on in our world today. Lord, help us to trust and to know that, that Lord, you are in control. You are at work. And your radical transforming grace is still invading our lives. Each and every moment of every day. Lord, may we be surrendered to it, Lord, I pray. Father, I ask for your blessing upon those who have gathered here, tuned in this morning, Lord, those who will listen later on. As our good shepherd, Lord Jesus, go before us, lead us, guide us. And Lord, if you might be so kind as to make a way for us to gather once again, Lord, in the days ahead, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all this morning. We're so grateful once again that you've chosen to tune in. Uh, our prayers are with you, and uh, if you need anything at all, please let the leadership of Calvary know. God bless you, and have a great week. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.